Okay, Jasmine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, hope you're staying well and healthy. Um, why don't you let the listeners know who you are and then what do you do? Yeah, thank you for having me. My name is Jasmine Maeda. I am a marketer through and through. I am a proud former athlete and try to continue to stay in fitness with my career and in my um, spare time. And I've been really, really privileged to work with a lot of different brands from small startups through global multinational um, organizations. And I'm proud to tell my story and you know, help hopefully inspire some of your listeners today. Fantastic. And what was your sport? What did you play? Basketball. You know, growing up, you play, you try to play everything. And I had to pick my sport my sophomore year in high school. And I chose basketball and I played, you know, till the streetlights came on through high school and then played in college and uh, was able to play professionally after college overseas as well. Awesome. What position were you? <laughs> so I've always been a point guard. It's funny. Um, I definitely like having command of the court and that continues to be something that I feel, uh, even in business, but I like understanding and having a bird's eye view of what's happening in front of me. And that started at a really early age playing sports. That's amazing. Uh, I was going to say, so by having the guard instinct, you sort of can call plays, you can run an offense. So why don't we, um, transition into like, I guess, what did you do like post your like what did you post your playing career and kind of like how did you think about that and um you know what what was your experience like yeah so i wrapped up my playing career at around the age of 21 and i did not know what i really wanted to invest time in from a career perspective and it was truly a blank for me i had no 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 knowledge of what a career outside of sports could be so I went where my heart and my confidence lie, which was in coaching. And I loved it. I loved the continued culture of sports. I loved the knowledge that I was bringing from being a player into a coaching role. And I not only was coaching basketball, but I was also coaching strength and conditioning, which I had learned around the time that I was graduating college and into professional playing that strength and conditioning at the time was such a complement to on-court skills. And so I was excited to play a strength and conditioning uh, role from elite athletes um, to professional athletes to kids who aspired to be um, great at their game. And as I continued coaching at the high school level and at the college level, I started to understand that I had more um, to give and I had more to learn, but I just didn't have the confidence or an understanding of how to leverage the knowledge of sports into something other than coaching. So I went and got my master's degree in a subject that I knew would help me in business in any number of capacities, which was economics. And that's where I also continued to coach as a grad assistant um, at Trinity College in, in Connecticut. And that was a great opportunity to stay in coaching, but also have the educational foundation to then leverage into a marketing or business position um, after I graduated. And I found a small startup concept that was rooted in strength and conditioning for high school and college athletes that was trying to franchise across the United States. And I was everything as startups can sometimes be. I was the director of marketing. I was the general manager for the flagship 
location. And I basically was able to test and learn a tremendous number of marketing tactics from positioning the sports offering to parents and kids to partnerships at the local level to uh, standardized uh, rules to franchise the, the concept outside of the flagship store. And so that was a really great foundation um, that allowed me to then uh, have the confidence and the credibility to apply for roles in marketing um, in, in the sports uh, landscape, which is how I landed at Reebok. Um, so I landed at Reebok after that uh, journey. But I'm talking, I coached through my 20s and I'm trying to enter corporate America around the age of 30, which was very you know, unusual at the time. Love that. And so what do you think is like something, if you had to summarize coaching in your 20s, what is something that you learned that sticks with you today that, you know, is just, you know, you, you learn about yourself, learn about coaching others, getting the, I mean, it's, it's competition. You, you have to get the best, you, gotta, you know, you got to leave it on the floor. Um, what did you learn? So coaching a team and, you know, I call it locker room to boardroom, <laughs> coaching a team is very similar to leading a team in business in my experience. A team first needs a common goal. And what's great about team sports is that goal is often either, you know, the championship or at least let's get to the playoffs or some sort of common goal that gels the team and allows everyone to have a purposeful vision. Very similar in business. That goal may be a revenue target or it may be a product launch, but those moments where everyone is communicating towards the same uh, objective is really, really important. And without that, even at, you know, in corporate America or, or leading a brand, it does, it is a struggle to gel a team around. So having a purposeful, intentional goal is, in my opinion, number one, and that's the same as any team sport. Two is understanding what positions people need to play and are the skills in the hands of the people playing those positions. So take, you know, basketball, you've got your point guard, you've got your shooting guard, you've got your big man or, or woman, and they have certain skills and capabilities to achieve what's needed in any given play in any given game against any opponent. The same is required in business. And sometimes, particularly uh, in smaller organizations, it's hard to understand what you need and who's playing that role because things are changing so quickly and absolutely, you know, you need people to play multiple roles. But as you scale, having a clear understanding of what the company needs is the right uh, role in place and is that person the right fit for that role is critical to succeeding and, and achieving those objectives. So I would say those two are the biggest goals that are the biggest um, transferable um, experiences that I took from leading a team to leading in business. And how exactly did you land at Reebok? Um, you know, a funny story. I applied for three different jobs. I was, you know, I'd been at the small franchise based startup for four years and I kept being brought in by the team at the marketing team at Reebok. And they kept telling me it's a no for now, but we think we could use somebody like you, but we don't know how. And I kept getting told because I'd never had any corp, you know, company or brand experience or corporate experience. And a gentleman uh, named Marcus Wilson, who now is the CEO and co-founder of Noble, a very successful um, CrossFit-centered brand, 
took a chance on me and it was very clear to me he was taking a chance on me and I, I am forever grateful for that. He said Reebok was just acquired by Adidas. The two brands were competitors up until, you know, last month. And now we need to determine what Reebok is and what Adidas is. And you've been with the consumer for 10 years. Effectively, the team sport consumer is, is you. You know what they've been doing. So we're going to bring you in on the insights and brand strategy team to help us make sure that we're taking a really purposeful um, insight-led approach to how we segment Adidas and Reebok and how we position the two brands in order to, to really compete in the marketplace. And so once I got that opportunity, um, you know, just like most athletes, you take it and you run with it. And I was really um, excited to learn. And I had a great team at Reebok who um, was doing a really tough thing. They were, you know, learning to live with what was a competitor. And um, yeah, from there, it was, it was really an opportunity for me to, to take advantage of. And what was like the organization like, I guess, post-merger? Like, how are you structured as a insights and brand uh, associate or manager? Um, and and kind of just like, what was, what type of, what type of work were you doing? Were you, were you a vertical where you had, you know, footwear or um you know sportswear or was it kind of was it kind of general maybe talk about like you know how the team was set up and kind of like what did you do and that kind of thing yeah so you know it was really fresh so Reebok and Adidas hadn't necessarily merged the two organizations formally at that point so Reebok was its own brand and built a brand strategy and insights team in the marketing organization that sat across all business verticals, men's, women's, kids at the time, as well as team sports. And the objective of that team was to take a market landscape view of sports related footwear, apparel and accessories and equipment, understand you know, the landscape where distribution lay, where the consumer preferences and behaviors were trending, even down to like, you know, color and some of the trends in the marketplace and have a very objective and declarative point of view based on uh, primary or secondary research, as well as when needed, do consumer-centered primary research, whether it was for a product launch, anything from wear testing to product positioning to price sensitivity, to naming, to the, at the time Reebok was uh, launching its first, you know, customize your own shoes site. Okay, what are we gonna call it? Is it RBK Custom? Is it Create Your Kicks? And so doing creative uh, testing with consumers for that as well. And it, I think setting that up as a whole, wholly owned team in marketing, not accountable to one business unit, allowed the consumer insights and strategy team to have a bird's eye view of what was needed in the um, in the moment during that quarter or that year, and stay focused on the priorities without allowing um, you know opinion to necessarily shape who needs to be uh, you know supported more or less, but allowing the whatever the business dynamics at the time were um, important, leveraging the insights that were needed at that time. And um... 
No, that's fascinating. So did you guys work with like agencies or did you ever like take things, I guess, out of house? Like, or was it all in house? How did that kind of work? Yeah, so this is now 15 years ago. This is quite a while ago, but generally speaking, if there were resources needed that weren't um, available internally, whether it was, you know, we're launching some basketball shoe with, at the time, Iverson, and we really wanted to get a sense of how the shoe and the positioning was going to play in Philly compared to Chicago, compared to New York City, we would use, um, at the time, a, a an an agency that was dedicated to kids of a certain segment, age, and preferences to make sure that we, you know, were able to get the insights that we needed instead of trying to just do everything ourselves. In addition, there were some things that um, were better handled internally, whether it was sensitive information or things that were more forward-looking, but we definitely used external agencies quite a bit. And how did you find that it was time for you to move on from that role? That's a great question. So I'm sitting here, you know, 32, 33, I don't remember exactly. And I was very self-aware that I'd always been in sports and that I loved it, but also was a little concerned that I was maybe holding myself back because of fear or anxiety that I wasn't going to be able to take a, even a step, not even a leap, but even a step outside of my comfort zone. And so I really wanted to be, um, conscious of my love for sports while also giving myself an environment where I could challenge myself. And Hasbro, toys and games, very similar to sports where there's a winner and a loser and it's about having fun or sometimes it's about competition. Hasbro had a role open that was around uh, driving new connections with consumers through legacy brands. And the brands were Monopoly and Trivial Pursuit. And the position was uh, director of marketing to lead the transformation of these board games into entertainment franchises for today's generation, where kids were not playing with tokens on boards, but they were playing on their mobile phones with EA and, um, and at the time playing Facebook games. That was really exciting, knowing where the world was going towards uh, more mobile-first entertainment and mobile-first experiences. And I also felt like I've been around this culture, this culture of you know people playing, playing games, playing uh, sports, and there, there were similarities there. So I got the opportunity to interview and was really excited to get the, the offer and joined Hasbro um, in the late you know, 2000, I don't know, it's such a long time ago now, it feels like, but like 2009 or so. And um, I feel like that's, and I have a master's degree in economics, but I feel like that's where I really got my MBA. It was practical experience, leading a portfolio of brands and leading not just marketing, but supporting product development from a real marketing first lens. So how are we going to position this product um, for today's generation. And that was coming from a marketing perspective, not just a product perspective. And I spent four years there leading what was Monopoly, the biggest games brand in the world globally, to inheriting all of family games, uh, anything from Jenga to Simon to, you know, the household names that we've come to adore. And um, yep. extremely, extremely lucky to have been a part of that transformation. And Hasbro now is known as one of the best uh, companies to leverage 
entertainment and and what are iconic brands and reinvent them with the blueprint being you know entertainment and personality and licensing across multiple forms and formats versus just single-mindedly focused on toy or game and i've been able to leverage that insight around capitalizing on what's culturally relevant into my roles uh since then and what was your team dynamic there like how was it organized how like what was your day-to-day like yeah, so Hasbro was interesting. When I joined, I was the only domestic-based employee. This was really unique for me. My entire team was based in the UK. My boss and my teammates were all based in the UK. And that was excellent experience of how to be empathetic to your teammates in other uh, countries, as now many com- companies are global. I was the one um, you know, on the video conference. I was the one at the random hours of the day taking the call. So I've taken that empathy into how I manage uh, global relationships with teammates since then. But, you know, it was very much a portfolio responsibility. So my team had responsibilities for a set of game brands. Other teams at Hasbro had specific toys or, or specific properties. And Hasbro has a very matrixed and complex organization because If it's a movie year and Transformers has a movie or it's a Star Wars year for Hasbro, that's massive. And as it should be, resources are dedicated towards that. My brands were equally game brands that had disproportionate emphasis because of the revenue volume and the the volume at retail around um, behemoths like Monopoly. And so uh, in a, you know, effort to drive prioritization, the teams would focus on what we call primetime brands, which had a full marketing mix and integrated support and a large marketing budget, to key drivers, which had a slightly less um, share of voice and share of budget, and then core brands like your Candyland that does a tremendous amount of volume around, say, holiday, but that may not have a big marketing campaign dedicated towards it. And so leveraging that portfolio management and having prioritization was exactly how we structured the team. And we had brand managers, we had sales teams, and we had product developers that were aligned to that as teams of teams um, versus feeling you know, very, very uh, kind of scattered and trying to figure out how we're going to support all of the products at the same time. Yeah, no, that's a really good experience. And sounds like you had more on your plate or you were looking to add more to your plate. Um, What did you do next after that? Yeah. So I was craving sports if I'm honest. So I spent four years at Hasbro and it was awesome and, you know, learned a tremendous amount. And um, I had always felt like Under Armour or Nike were, uh, you know, true to my blood. Under Armour, known for being a team sport brand, having a very strong point of view around training. And then Nike, because, you know, I grew up idolizing Michael Jordan, as we all did, now with the last dance playing every Sunday. Um, but generally speaking, um, Under Armour had an opportunity to lead the men's training business. And I thought, what a great opportunity. I'm a female minority who has been in sports my whole career to go put my hat in the ring for a director of marketing role, leading men's training for one of the, you know, generation defining brands in sports. And 
I was brought on to lead men's training, men's running, and men's underwear. And at the time, the business was uh, organized by gender, men's, women's, and kids. And it was awesome to be um, given the opportunity to lead uh, some of the strategic decisions around how should we position the brand to drive growth internationally. The brand when I uh, joined was 75, 80% US and really wanted to see tremendous growth internationally. How do we become a footwear relevant brand through the lens of running? And I was responsible for men's running. And over my time there, almost six years, I had the privilege of working with so many incredible people, Under Armour hires, really uh, talented uh, marketers and product engineers and storytellers who love, just completely love and breathe, eat and sleep sports. And uh, that culture really suited me. And as the, um, you know, the world continued to stay focused on digital innovation. So did Under Armour by acquiring three apps, Map My Run, My Fitness Pal, and Endomondo. And I was fortunate to inherit uh, women's running at a time and then took on uh, connected fitness and digital uh, running. And it was an incredible background for me to um, have an understanding of analog products, shoes, shirts, accessories, and digital products and how they marry together to really create a, a service and a story for today's athletes. And that was really what got me um, you know, more and more interested in staying at the forefront of digital innovation in sports. And what was sort of like the growth driver um, when you look back at it? Was it those digital apps or were there like specifically like literally opening a store in like Singapore or something like how did you kind of think about how to allocate resources and kind of get back return on investment because I'm sure at the time you know Under Armour was a huge company there's investor pressure there's you know pressure to grow so on and so forth maybe talk about like how did you sell stuff <laughs> yeah you know I think in today's marketplace and even when I was at Under Armour it's very difficult today to drive a connection and sell with one mechanism. Today's consumers, in my experience, are looking for emotional connections to brands that mean something to them. And Under Armour had a tremendous, and still does, has a tremendous uh, amount of equity in training. And so providing consumers the ability to see themselves achieving greatness, whatever that greatness is through the products came came through the athletes that Under Armour had when I was there. So for example, in 2015, um, Bryce Harper, Tom Brady, um, you know, there was a licensing deal with Muhammad Ali. All of these greats who were at the top of their game were at the top of their game. And Under Armour benefited from that credibility and having that logo associated with greatness. That endorsement, super fit, you know, the signal of that endorsement on field, plus the true, you know, product is put to the test and performs endorsement on field is a story that consumers care about and, and cared about at the time. In addition, as I mentioned, this idea of service. And so my fitness pal at the time, you know, again, it's been a few years since I've been there, but at the time had millions and millions and millions of users 
Well, as people are getting healthier with a digital service, they ultimately are going to want to uh, stay active. And so providing the users of the apps the ability to not just see their data, but also get the apparel, footwear, and accessories that they need to be great at whatever athletic pursuit that they have was, a, was an experience that Under Armour built itself around. So, you know, there's a combination of digital media, endorsements. There were some events. There was an early uh, partnership with Tough Mudder at the time in 2012, 2013 that were all signals and experiences that surrounded the consumer around with Under Armour, you can get better. And that story was really what we, we focused on and we made sure that we were never sitting idle or sitting um, quiet. We were always finding ways to, to show that with Under Armour and show and experience with Under Armour, you'll get better. I like that. Um... I'm interested in the licensing piece. I know you mentioned like Muhammad Ali, like, so what was kind of that strategy or to however you remember, like the breakdown when you, when you acquire that license, I mean, obviously you integrate that into merchandise and product, but then um, it's the storyteller. It's the, it's the broader story that's being told. Um, like how would Under Armour make the most of like, say like it's licensing agreements or it's licensing partnerships in a way that sort of was still true to the brand that it set out to kind of, you know, it's about sports, it's about team com competitiveness. Like how, how did that kind of tie in and make results? Yeah. So I had a lot of experience with licensing from Hasbro, you know, the monopoly brand, uh, and its equity in helping families and people of all generations feel a sense of richness, you know, can come to life through apparel or slot machines or lottery tickets. All of those were licensing deals, including the massive global monopoly at McDonald's franchise. And what that taught me was people have emotional connections to properties and when put in an environment that reinforces that emotional connection, then it can trigger purchase and or trigger deeper interest. And when I joined Under Armour, I inherited this test that the brand was doing with superheroes, Marvel and DC Comics, so Hulk, Spider-Man, Superman, etc being put on the original tight t-shirt from Under Armour, the original base layer, which was a genius uh, marrying of a property that signals strength and power and endurance, a Marvel or DC comic character, with a sports brand that has a promise that we can make you better. And so similar to Monopoly at McDonald's or Monopoly lottery tickets, under Armour was leveraging the brand equity of these properties and putting it into a context that was familiar to increase purchase. And for a few years, it was, and as licensing goes, you know, there's the model is um, absolutely a cyclical model. Uh, the Under Armour benefited from that extension and from that deepening of equity through those properties. And, um, you know, it takes a great amount of discipline in licensing to make sure that you don't oversaturate the marketplace. So 
um, driving new connections through similar properties, Muhammad Ali being a great example of that. Um, the brand was able to drive uh, a nice little extension of what Under Armour meant through licensing. Um, so that's really been my experience, but uh, I think it's around contextualizing what the other brand means in a relevant way, which has proven successful in my, in, in my experience. That's awesome. And what was your, what was going to be next for you after that? Where'd you go? Where'd you land? Yeah. So getting that bug of digital transformation and sports, I was, um, you know, I was seeking a brand that was, you know, had a strong, strong point of view on where it wanted to go, but that was still early enough where I could make a difference. You know, having a look back at my career, I now know I like smaller to, to mid-sized businesses. And um, Peloton in, in 2018 was a perfect place for somebody like me and my background to join because it was leveraging the best of, and still is, media, technology, and fitness, and bringing that experience to consumers through software and hardware and an experience that was you know, second to none. And I joined in 2018 as VP of brand marketing and the brand, you know, has an incredible amount of uh, awareness today, but in, you know, in the early um, part of 2018 was just starting out as a cycling brand looking to go into other forms and formats and was US only. And um, I was there for two years. I just transitioned in April to, to start my own company, but I was there for two years and it was a really great experience to be a part of the brand going public and going global. And um, it was the right extension of my experience from, from Under Armour and uh, capitalizing on the uh, platforms from a digital perspective to go into from there. And kind of what was like the culture at Peloton like? Because I, I see the commercials, um, I read the news. Um, I know some customers and it seems like it's got a really strong culture around sort of, I mean, brand. It, it's just like a brand. Cause it's like, when I think about like home fitness technology, it's like, I, I think of Peloton like first, like, and then there's like, I can't even think of any other brand. So like, what was the brand experience like there? Like what was kind of like the culture like what like how is that that communication style so so strong so effective is it is it a like maybe talk talk about that a little bit yeah sure peloton has an incredible culture and i think what members feel is they feel a part of the actual company culture which is people mattering first and people mattering most and the brand team uh, and the larger marketing organization prides itself on being members first. We want to treat people the way, you know, we would want to be treated. It's a very simple way of operating. And knowing that people who care about fitness, even a little bit, want a great experience and they want it in a place that's comfortable to them, meaning the commute to get somewhere, the high cost, you know, these are things that create friction. Um, Peloton strives to bring that best-in-class, world-class experience 
to the comfort of your home. And that leverage of technology, that leverage of incredible expertise in music, that leverage of um, how software can make people feel closer together, even when they may be in different places, were all parts of the experience that uh, members have have come to love. And, you know, we're sitting here now in the middle of this coronavirus era where more of us are home. And it's incredible to see the brand allow access to the Peloton experience through the digital only, um, the, the app itself, as well as um, continuing where, where possible to service uh, the demand for cycling. But the culture was simply um, respecting the teammates and the experts that are that are there to do one thing, which is provide the best experience in the comfort of home and treating you know treating members the way we would want to be treated. And what made you jump off the deep end? <laughs> well, I'd always wanted to start my own thing, and the uh, idea of bringing sports to life through art was kind of the foundation that I'd been toying with in 2017, 2018. And, you know, you get to a point where you're trying to do your side hustle or you're trying to do your full-time thing. And I never, ever let Peloton be second. I was always focused on my um, responsibility there. And at some point you have to say, are you really going to do this? And I was asking myself that at the turn of the year. And I, I just made a commitment to go for it. And it's been an incredible few weeks. It's only been three weeks, but being able to focus on, you know, the business strategy, the brand strategy in a climate and in a culture where almost all businesses are thinking about what is the future of uh, their company or their brand has been an interesting experience for me because it's been a very open experience for me as a solo entrepreneur having conversations with uh, either potential partners, designers, uh, collaborators, et cetera. And so I'm trying to see the silver lining of uh, starting on this journey in April of 2020, knowing that the economic climate certainly isn't how I expected it to be and seeing what it is, which is everyone, not just me, is starting their business over. Um, that's a dramatization, but it really does feel like the majority of us are, and I'm trying to see the the benefit in that. And it's it's resulting in a lot of great collaborative conversations and some pilots and some tests that I'm excited to see how they're going to play out. And for um, the audience, maybe you can just describe the the company and kind of what it what your uh, what problems you're solving and go into that a little bit. Yeah, so the brand name is Round 21, um, R-O-U-N-D-2-1. And, you know, essentially it's a marketplace that leverages artist collaborations and brings to life sports we love through art. And I'm starting with ping pong, which I get a lot of, you know, crooked eyebrows when I say that. But I love the way ping pong is a multi-generational, multicultural activity experienced by so many people of different backgrounds that has been timeless and has been absolutely, you know, a part of uh, recreational history. And I am excited to bring energy and story to uh, this incredible activity that brings so many people joy. And from there, through artist collaborations where their art comes to life on the products, 
um, ping pong can then expand into other into other sports. Um, but you know the the modern day uh, consumer today wants to stand out. They want to have something that feels uncommon, and they want to have fun and connect with others. And round twenty one is absolutely at the intersection of that experience. That's fantastic. Well, where can the listeners um, follow you and check you out and and support you? I appreciate that. Well, first, uh, we're on Instagram. We're just getting started. You're, you know, it's day one, but we are on Instagram at we are round 21 and you can check us out on our website at www.round21.com. And, you know, as we're getting going, we're absolutely looking for designers and artists to also co-create the brand. And so an easy, you know, DM on Instagram will get us uh, a little bit of information about any artists who are out there looking to share a point of view or a story that they may have through their art in sports. Um, and yeah, any any uh, opportunities ahead to, to bring joy and connectivity to, to consumers is where you'll find us. Perfect. Thank you so much for doing this, Jasmine. Thank you. I appreciate it very much.